everyone. Welcome back to the Good E-Reader Radio Show, your definitive broadcast talking about all things e-readers, tablets, digital publishing, e-books, and a whole lot more. I'm joined today by Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. Jeremy, how are you doing? Doing just fine, Michael. How are you? I'm uh, transpiring quite well, thanks. So you've been doing some investigative journalism recently, uh, talking about uh, Apple's rising market share in the States. What can you tell us? So I noticed, and I'm sure we've all noticed over the past year, that Barnes & Noble has really fallen off when it comes to selling digital content. And, you know, the going thinking over the past couple of years was that Barnes & Noble was solidly the number two retailer in the U.S. when it came to e-books. Um, and I knew that, 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 you know, if Barnes & Noble continues to fall off, that is likely to change, um, especially if its biggest rival, uh, its closest rival, Apple, uh, makes gains. So what I found out uh, was I talked to a number of publishers and self publishing distributors about market share that they were seeing just for their titles between the retailers over the past three months. And many publishers actually refused to give me that information or really talk to me about it at all on or off the record. Many did talk to me off the record and give me background information. It's a very sensitive topic because they don't want to go uh, have it publicly stated that they're, you know, what their suppliers or what their retailers are doing. They think it could upset the retailers. So what I found out is that um, you know, Barnes & Noble still seems like it's number two, but it's getting a lot closer between Apple and Barnes and & Noble. So if you break it down, the biggest publishers, um, for the biggest, biggest publishers, Barnes & Noble still looks like it's number two. But if you look at the, the medium-sized publishers, uh, it's really hard to say which one is number one, which one's number two. It varies between the publishers. And then if you look at the small publishers and the self-published authors, it looks like Apple actually has surpassed Barnes & Noble uh, for a lot of them. Um, so I think the reason isn't what everyone's been talking about, which is that agency pricing going away allows Amazon to discount so much that they can get market share, that Amazon can get market share. Um, I don't know that people really do a lot of comparison shopping uh, for ebook prices. Uh, we've seen, looking at some of the data coming out of the Codex group, that if they if if someone is buying ebooks from Apple or Barnes and Noble, they're actually quite loyal. So I'm not sure how much pricing is really factoring into it for most ebook buyers. What I think has happened, though, at especially Barnes and Noble, is that Amazon uh, has really cut into Barnes and Noble, or or really the the publishers or the new rules around retailing has really cut into Barnes and Noble's uh, profits, and therefore Nook has had to cut back on other important stuff like developing new technology and devices and software. Um, and so I think that has really hurt Nook's market share uh, in terms of selling ebooks. Um, but I would guess that sometime in the middle of this year or early next year, um, if things keep on going the same way they do, that Apple will solidly be the number one, number two ebook retailer in the U.S. I know, you know, we've speculated that Nook may not be in it for the long haul. That may, Nook might sort of give up on its uh, ebook retail business or get sold at some point. Um, Apple is in it for the long haul. Apple, I think, is very uh, dedicated to selling ebooks. So one thing that uh, I'll mention on that is when 
Puppet or sort of Nook Press launched officially in uh, Europe. I talked to uh, Teresa Horner, who is, I guess, in charge of uh, Nook Press, which is uh, Barnes and Noble's self-publishing program. And I kind of asked her, you know, what's the deal with, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble uh, in the states? And um, she wouldn't really talk a lot about it, but I did find out some juicy info that they are having high-level talks right now about bringing independent books published on Nook Press to Barnes & Noble bookstores. And I know this is something that we've talked a lot about on the show in the past, but apparently they are having more talks now than they've ever had before about that. So considering the the expansion into, I guess they're in eight countries total now in terms of people being able to uh, submit their self-published titles and sell them all over Europe, sell them in the States, sell them in the UK and so on. So um, do you think that that would be a game changer? Absolutely. I think it would be a huge game changer. Um, you know, the biggest hurdle that I think many indie authors feel that is keeping them from being at, at discussed as at the highest echelons of, you know, book uh, book quality and sort of uh, prestige in book publishing is being sold in bookstores. And you know, if you're a self-published author and you're thinking very seriously about your business, um, you realize that's kind of the last frontier in terms of you know where you're not making money, where you're not making inroads, and where you're not finding readers is in bookstores. So it's very, very, very few self-published titles making into any kind of bookstore. So I think that'd be a huge game changer. And if I were uh, at Barnes and Noble and I wanted to uh, really supercharge this, what I would do is I would do exclusivity agreements that uh, you can sign up for something like KDP, but it's much longer lasting because the book has to actually be uh, published at, at some kind of print run and then distributed across many bookstores, um, that your content would be exclusively Nook and Barnes and & Noble content. Uh, and I think that, that could be something that could really help generate more numbers for Barnes & Noble because then you have authors who are marketing machines unto themselves you know, pushing more people uh, in that direction uh, versus uh, to multiple directions. Um, I totally agree. Um, I, I think that the the KDP exclusivity is one of the big draws about the platform is that, you know, you could participate in the Kindle lending library and, you know, get a ton of different benefits. And really, Amazon's relying on the authors themselves to promote their books that are on Amazon, where with Barnes & Noble self-publishing, I've as much as I follow the industry, and I would probably say that I follow the industry a little bit more than your average uh, bear, and it's yeah, Barnes Noble's missing the boat. I, I, you know, I can't really think of too many authors that just hype the fact that their books are available on Nook Press. <laughs> um, what about you? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and it's because for a lot of self-published authors, um, you know, Nook. It, and everyone else aside from Amazon is really a secondary thought um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, Amazon, first of all, sells the most ebooks by far. Uh, and second of all, um, Amazon has been very good at responding to authors' needs and courting authors. So I think that um, you know, you're absolutely right about that impression uh, among authors. Uh, the other thing is that you know, if you are a publisher, a, a, a sort of established book publisher, you know, you're thinking about everything that goes on around your book, print and e. Um, but that may not be the case if you are a self-published author because print is just a much, much smaller part of the mix. And if print's a much smaller part of the mix, 
you know, Amazon isn't just your biggest retailer, it is your, it's your world. Um, whereas for the publishers, you know, Amazon is their biggest trading partner for most publishers, um, but, you know, there are other considerations. You know, Barnes & Noble is a really important trading partner because of the, print, the, the bookstores, and there are many other trading partners like, you know, say Walmart or supermarkets or craft stores that are really important for you also. So um, I think that, that adding print to the mix would be a, a massive game changer for Barnes & Noble. Okay, we've talked a little bit about the market in the United States right now. Let's jump to the Canadian market, which is uh, my home turf. Uh, BookNet Canada recently released a new uh, report that basically talked about uh, the bookstore market, the print market in 2013. Apparently, the total market was down probably about 3.4% versus 2012, although some of the categories in 2013 uh, leapt up significantly. Uh, juvenile nonfiction uh, increased um, and Biography and autobiography titles increased by staggering 21%. Are you surprised? Um, not really. I don't know the details behind it. My guess is that this is, um, you know, an issue of a couple of books really pushing the numbers. Um, and and, and when, when the markets get smaller, and Canada's book market isn't small by any means, but it's much smaller than the U.S. book market. Yeah. When the markets get smaller, you know, one title can make such a huge difference. And, and you see this publisher to publisher, um, but you also see it, uh, you know, across the market as a whole. So I don't know what titles we're talking about, but assuming there were a couple of really big titles in those categories um, that did really well, in, in particular in metropolitan areas, uh, it could be that that is really the, the main thing uh, that is driving uh, the increase. Okay, so we've talked about Canada, the U.S. One of the huge markets, obviously, by you know just the sheer amount of people living there, China. And uh, DBW posted a report on the ebook strategy for publishers in China. What can you tell us about that? So, China has almost one and a half billion people, and almost half of them are internet users. Um, the number of people in China using tablets and smartphones has eclipsed that in the U.S., um, uh, that of the U.S., and the book market is $20 billion, which is roughly two-thirds uh, of the U.S. book market. So we're talking about a very robust, and, that, and that's actually a higher proportion of gross domestic product um, than in the U.S. So we're talking about a very robust um, opportunity here, and, and the problem in China is that there are very, very, very few e-books available um, widely in Chinese um, and and certainly much fewer in English. So it's really a publisher issue. You know, we've talked about this on Digital Book World before. Uh, that what you really need for an ebook market to develop is you need uh, the retailers, which is distribution. You need the actual titles, which is ebooks, and then you need uh, the readers, um, the people who are going to to buy them. You? If you have those three things, um, then you're going to have a market. Uh, so in China, the, the missing ingredient may just be the publishers, which I think means there's opportunity for publishers. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't risk. There is definitely risk involved. Um, it could be that the market doesn't develop the same way it does in the U.S. Uh, look at the way the different reading markets around the world have developed. Uh, you would figure that France would be uh, just a, a massive e-book reading market because of the technological capabilities of the society. Um, but for other reasons, you know, France hasn't developed as fast as the other e-book markets. Or you know, Spain is a very a literary society in a lot of ways, but uh, it, the Spanish don't read as many books as, as people uh, in places like the UK or the US or India, which leads the world in this category. 
so there's a lot of risk there, um, but I think there's also a tremendous amount of opportunity. One thing I've learned about China from tracking it over the years is that homegrown companies stand to have a lot of success versus overseas companies moving into China. Uh, it took Amazon years of negotiation to get into China and they, you know, they're not really doing that well there. Um, I know Overdrive has been making inroads to get Chinese libraries hooked up in digital distribution, but the same thing, it's like negotiations have been going on for about a year and a half and it doesn't seem like they're any closer to getting a deal. So do you think with the Chinese market, it's homegrown companies that are going to make the biggest splash? Or do you think it's companies that, you know, established players like an Apple or an Amazon or, you know, a Kobo, do you think um, that they have the best possibility of making inroads in that market? You know, on the retail and distribution side, I, I agree with you. The homegrown companies have a big advantage, and, and I would be surprised if, uh, you know, homegrown companies didn't win the day. On the publisher side, I think it's going to be a mix. I think you're going to see the big international publishers do well in China, and I think you're going to see surprises out there that some of the small and medium-sized publishers and self-published authors do well in China. Um, you know, the e-book e distribution and retail game is a cutthroat game. It's it's not wide open. Um, really, Amazon, Apple, and Kobo uh, worldwide have taken the lead on this. They're in the most countries. They have the most troops on the ground. They have the biggest advantage. And there are some homegrown companies that you know, test them here and there in the various markets. Um, but what they're doing is they're creating a situation that for the publishers, it's wide open. It is very, very, very easy to have your books distributed through, these, through all of these platforms in all of these various countries. Um, so I think that on the retail side, you're probably right that there's going to be a, a significant advantage for uh, homegrown retailers for a variety of reasons. Um, but on the distribution side, or on the publisher side, I think we're going to see some surprises that you're going to see some publishers uh, who you may not have expected um, do quite well there. All right. So let's talk a little bit about ebook bestsellers. Um, a lot of people have their own curated list. You know, DBW has their bestseller list, and you guys source it to, um, like, you know, the Huffington Post and like a lot of other big companies. Uh, New York Times they do their own bestseller list, and it's sourced out to a lot of publications. And um, you know, you look at probably the largest reporting agency out there in terms of monitoring bestseller list and then pushing out all that info to all their affiliates is Nielsen Bookscan. And uh, Nielsen pretty well gets all their information from traditional book and motor stores, but increasingly that they're getting their information from, you know, online companies, uh, Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble and so on. And when Bookscan puts together their reports, it's sourced out to major newspapers all over the world, including the Wall Street journal and it gets fed back to Amazon and Barnes and Noble and anybody that basically they take data from eventually those reports get pushed back to those people saying look you know we we condensed all this data from supermarkets and bookstores and online retailers and this is our bestseller list well I wrote an article about how Nielsen Bookscan is getting a lot of faulty data, and it's because of companies uh, of such as a result source that basically allow authors to game the system. Um, 
we have a report here from a pastor in Seattle that spent $200,000 to make his way on the best, basically almost every bestseller list. Um, he had hired people to purchase 6,000 copies of his book in bookstores and then ordered another 5,000 copies in bulk. And this was dispersed amongst 1,000 different payment methods. So Nielsen Bookscan couldn't track all the purchases back to a single source. So my question to you, Jeremy, is that We've all heard about results source before and a lot of companies that you can pay to uh, write fake reviews for your books and things like that. So do you think that Nielsen is getting faulty data due to authors artificially putting themselves on the bestseller list by paying companies like results source? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but what do you mean by faulty? I mean, you know, are people independently going out to bookstores and uh, buying these titles, uh, no. But the, the titles are being sold, and I think you always have to take bestseller lists uh, with a grain of salt because people, since time immemorial, have been trying to find ways to game the system. Um, so I think that you know there 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 are a lot of problems with the way that all of the different trackers do their jobs. But as long as you understand the limitations, I think that. Um, you know, you're ahead of the game. And I'd rather have the tracking with the limitations than no tracking at all. Do you think that a revelation like this sort of uh, abuses the public trust of, of Nielsen Bookscan? Because when, you know, the average person picks up the Wall Street Journal and looks at the bestseller list, it's like they're trusting the Wall Street Journal as being a paper with integrity, and they're trusting their data to say, oh, you know, obviously these books are on a list because a lot of people are buying them, so they must be good books. And do you think that authors, you know, abusing the system, you know, spending $80,000 to get on the top five of Amazon, and then that data gets pushed to Nielsen, Nielsen's data gets distributed all over the world, and all of a sudden you have a book that really drops off of Amazon's bestseller list within two weeks because the author's not paying any money anymore by about that, but at the same time, that Nielsen data is still being pushed out as current data all over the place. So. It seems to me that I don't. My trust has been shaken with with bestseller lists, especially when it comes from uh, companies like Nielsen, just because of how prevalent uh, authors are about gaming the system. You know, I understand what you're saying. Um, you know, at the same time, I think that you know, as long as you know the limitations of the sources, then you should, um, you know see it as the lesser of two evils. That the options are we don't get tracking, or we get this tracking where we, we have holes in it. Now, if we know where the holes are, it's a little bit better. I think it's incumbent upon organizations like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to put pressure on Nielsen to try to improve its system. And now that we know that this hole exists, you know, we can understand that that's a limitation that the system has, and um, maybe it'll be improved in some way. I think the problem is the lack of transparency, not, not, the, not the issues. The issues are always going to be there. There's always going to be problems with, with these kinds of tracking. I mean, it's just too complicated of a system and too complicated of a market. Um, but I'd rather have some tracking than no tracking. I'd just like to know where the problems are. 
you know, I, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm kind of singling out Nielsen because they're the largest, you know, one out there. And I almost like see it as the blame game where people could say, you know, Nielsen, your, your data's tracking, your, you know, your data is not the most honest out there. So what can you do to fix it? And they'll say, well, you know, it's basically Amazon. You know, people are uh, in, you know, there's holes in Amazon system or there's there's holes in, in, in Barnes & Noble system where, you know, you could buy books in bulk for almost half the price as the retail price and then just end up returning those books about a, a week later and getting almost all of your money back but you still made it on the bestseller list so there, there's a lot of holes in the system where I don't think Nielsen is totally to blame but there's like holes in you know bulk sales there's holes in Amazon system and I don't really think that any of this stuff will ever really be patched up anytime soon. So I guess we're going to have to sort of abide by your philosophy of recognizing there's a problem, but just be thankful that there's some sort of reporting going on rather than no reporting at all. And also be thankful that we know where, where the problems are. And the more problems we identify, um, you know, the better the tracking systems can get. So we've talked a little bit about their ebook bestseller list, but DBW, you have your own bestseller list. How exactly do you get the data? And, um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. We're very uh, clear about our methodology. And uh, the way that we get data is um, through basically going to each of the ebook retailers and looking at sales ranking for books. So we actually don't get actual unit sales. We get sales ranking. Um, and then what we do is we have a sort of you know, magic that we put the sales ranking data every single day into. We do it for seven days throughout the week at a special time. We collect the data. And um, we then sort of weight it by market share, uh, or perceived market share through ebook retailers, which is something that's an evolving number that we always are investigating, like you know, such as the investigation we just completed uh, today. Um, and it goes through this sort of like little machine and out comes the bestseller list. And, and you can look at the methodology uh, on our website. We post it um, very clearly, a link to it uh, every single time we publish our bestseller list. Uh, cool. Uh, I mean, I'm just interested because, you know, um, everyone sort of approaches their list differently. And I'm glad that you're sort of sourcing it yourself, you know, as opposed to relying on like, you know, uh, third parties to provide that information for you. So, um, what types of things that uh, what types of things are new at DBW these days? Um, well, we are working on our final webcast on ebook production is tomorrow, uh, and that uh, series has gone really, really well. It's been extremely fascinating. We got way more attendees than we ever thought we would. Ebook production is a very, very hot topic right now. Um, and it's something that really concerns everybody from the biggest publishers to the aspiring authors who want to publish books. Um, we are working on something that I can't talk about right now, but it's really exciting, planned for June. It's going to be an event, um, not a live event, uh, not an in-person event, but a, but a live online event. And I will talk about it on this webcast as soon as I can, but suffice it to say, it's going to be very exciting. Awesome. Well, I look forward to uh, hearing about that as well as probably our millions and millions of listeners out there uh, in internet land. Uh, one thing I want to talk about before we wrap up uh, the show for today is 
a report that Apple is considering launching iTunes for Android. Now, as everyone knows, uh, there's iTunes for PC, for Mac. If you have like an iDevice, you know, you can do business there. But probably one of the last ecosystems or operating systems that uh, Apple is not involved in is Android. And uh, we have a report that uh, Apple is considering opening up uh, iTunes and making a standalone uh, Apple radio app uh, to release on Android as well. Do you think that, what do you think the likelihood of something like this happening is? Um, I would put it at, at very high because Android is continuing to make inroads. Um, Apple is not just a platform, but also a uh, content sales company. And, you know, that, this is the kind of thing that you never would have really seen happen with Steve Jobs. Because one of his beliefs was that Apple really needed to control the entire consumer experience uh, to, to maintain its brand and to, to continue to give customers, you know, the very, very best of whatever they were trying to give customers. Now, I think that with the Android platform, you might get some people saying, well, we can't really control exactly how this is going to be. It's going to be on a different device than what we're used to. It'll be on uh, you know, a, dif a different um, you know, software than what we're used to. Who knows what the problems might be? Um, but I think Android has gotten so large that Apple needs to consider it. And the other reason is that Apple's content sales have been sliding. And uh, you know, the rumor going around is that it's sort of all hands on deck. All, all ideas are welcome in terms of figuring out uh, what to do to uh, solve the, the sliding content sales problem. Um, you know, and I totally agree. I've heard uh, murmurings, but I don't have the data to back it up. But Apple is very notorious for never giving data away, which, you know, kind of falls in line with, you know, how you were, you know, going about uh, looking for market share for Apple because, you know, Amazon and Apple and Barnes and & Noble and Kobo, they never release unit sales like at all. So if you want to get data, you have to go directly to the publishers. And in Apple's case, you know, they never divulge data like this. So it's really hard to say um, if their revenue is sliding, exactly how much it's sliding. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it seems to be a problem enough that they are exploring these options. And like you said, I mean, Steve Jobs famously said that, you know, you'll never get these sort of things on Android because he hates Android. Um, and, you know, he was basically at war with the operating system for like the longest time. But now that, you know, he's not a part of this earthly realm anymore and there's a new management in charge the prospect of, of, you know, at least Apple Radio for Android, I think fairly solid. I don't think that that's a barrier at all. Um, iTunes on Android, I mean, Google, Google sort of, I could see Google approving it mainly because Google has approved about a million fart apps and about a thousand or to about 10,000 light, uh, like, um, you know, when you turn your phone into a flashlight, so flashlight sure. apps, I see so many of those that it just makes my head spin. So having an app like this, I think, would may be a selling point almost for Android that you could get the Apple type services in a non-Apple phone. And so for all the people that have existing Android tablets and phones, which, you know, I think Android, as it stands, is one of the most, you know, if not the most popular OS out there by market share. So Apple would be increasing their footprint exponentially uh, with this move. Um, 
one other Apple note I wanted to talk about, and this is mainly applying to not just Apple, but everybody, about how ebook prices are set to increase in the UK by 2015. I guess as, as most people know in Europe, you pay lower VAT prices in the UK because, you know, Google and Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and uh, all these companies, they're based in Luxembourg where the VAT is significantly less, anywhere between 3 and 15%. So if you buy a book from Amazon while living in the UK, you're paying less VAT uh, because the companies are based in Luxembourg. But apparently the UK government in 2015 is closing that tax loophole and they're making so you're paying the VAT depending on the originating country in which the customer is buying the content from. So whether you're buying an app from Apple or an audiobook from Audible or an ebook from Amazon and you live in the UK, you're not going to be paying reduced VAT rates anymore. Instead, you're going to be paying the UK VAT rates because you're living in the UK and purchasing from Amazon. Do you think that this is going to dramatically increase the prices of basically just digital content in general? I do think that this is going to have uh, a, a price increase uh, effect in the UK and in the rest of Europe. Um, this is something that's been long discussed, uh, that this Luxembourg um, you know, digital content retail basically loophole was going to have to be closed. And um, you know, I think that people who are buying ebooks in the UK are going to notice a slight price increase. And it's really up to the retailers how to handle this. Uh, probably Amazon will try to soften the blow to some degree. Um, but uh, I do think that we're going to see increases. Yeah, I mean, and, and the UK is obviously one of the, the biggest markets in the world. So uh, they do have uh, high taxes on digital content. Do you think that once the, the Luxembourg tax loophole is closed, do you think that there'll be like a public outcry or a, a public debate or even a government debate on what is, why is that on digital content so much higher versus like tangible content? Like there's a huge uh, price gulf between the VAT on a physical book and a VAT on a digital book. And I think that that, do you think that that will sort of, that fact will engage like a public opinion or uh, the issue will be talked about a little bit more now? Yeah, I think, and, and I think eventually it's going to change. I mean, I think that, that a lot of the policies that have determined that are sort of protectionist policies for physical stores. Um, and as, you know, online retail is increasingly seen um, as, as something that, that people in these countries want to embrace and a, and a change in the way business is done, that uh, there will be a, at the very least a discussion. And I do think eventually uh, it will change. All right, guys. So you've been listening to the Giddy Reader Radio Show. Uh, currently, we are giving away a Firefox phone by ZTE, the ZTE Open. Uh, you can check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash goodyreader. Contest is open for about another week or so. And all you have to do is uh, like the video, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and simply drop a comment on the contest. We run contests every single week. We give away e-readers, tablets, accessories, phones and a whole lot more so you could uh, check that out and uh, you've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show with uh, Michael and Jeremy. Everybody take care.